Welcome to the Teaching Classroom 21, a podcast by the Ever Learner. I'm James, your host. Join me and my guests every week as we discuss, debate, and explore the features of a world-class classroom in the 21st century. Welcome to the Teacher in Classroom 21 podcast. I'm your host, James Sims, and joining me online all the way from East Holt High School in the east of England is Cheryl Schmidt. Cheryl has progressed over 15 years at East Holt, starting on a training placement, being recruited as an NQT English teacher, then second in English, then head of year, then lead practitioner, and now assistant head teacher with responsibility for teaching and learning. Cheryl is a colleague who came to my attention earlier this academic year when she contacted me to invite my team and I to East Holt to develop staff on a whole school project for the roadmap. Since first contact with Cheryl, I've been deeply impressed with how she communicates, motivates and leads. I specifically recall Cheryl guiding her whole school teaching team expertly and proactively during our visit and inset session. We visit many schools in our work and rarely do we find a large team of colleagues so united behind a common cause and identity. This is testament to Cheryl's work and, I'm sure, the work of many at East Burkholt. Cheryl is from a single parent working class background and went to university at the age of 21. She recently told me going to uni as an 18 year old was too alien a concept to me, but by 21, after working on checkouts and temping in numerous offices, I was ready. Cheryl is a stepmom to two boys, both of whom are sitting big exams this summer, wife to an award-winning German philosophy teacher, as well as being a dedicated teacher. It's fair to say that life is busy. Cheryl is a passionate vintage clothing shopper, and during one conversation in recent days, Cheryl told me, I recently, I recently bought a proper 1970s fake fur coat at a kilo sale and wore it at school. I looked like a small bear on playground duty. <laughs> Cheryl is a high quality human being whose colleagueship I value greatly even from a distance and today we'll explore numerous ideas and possibilities together. Cheryl welcome to the show. Hello James thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So Cheryl I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, drop a bombshell on you. I've got a quote uh, from one of your colleagues about you which I hope you're gonna be allow me to read out. I promise it's good so you can you can sit comfortably. Uh, I'd, okay. I'd, re- I'd really just like your response to this. Um, One of your colleagues uh, wrote to me, actually almost in the last few hours, and wrote, Cheryl is an inspirational leader of teaching and learning, the go-to person for advice and innovation. She is always happy to help and and support both experienced and newly qualified colleagues, and is a role model for outstanding teaching at East Burgle High School. I'd just like to get your reaction on that quote, really. Good grief. Yeah. I'm, a bit flawed, I'm a bit flawed by it, to be honest. I need to find out who this person is. I'll tell you later. <laughs> I owe them big time. Well, that, I mean, that's, that's incredible to hear. That's, that is absolutely incredible to hear. I think, you know, I think one of the things about our profession is we probably don't say things like that enough to, to each other, to, to our colleagues, because, yeah, I'm, I'm quite flawed by that, if I'm honest. Flawed and wonderfully flattered. 
and I, I draw there's numerous facets to it that I found interesting because you you can take the technical aspects out of it, such as, as supports both experienced and newly qualified. Which, when I read that, for example, I thought about your own journey through your own school. But the, actually, the word that stood out to me because it was also my experience was happy. You, that you're happy to help. That you've got that kind of this can do proactivity sort of side to, to, to how you how you are at school I mean do, do you recognize that in yourself I, I am I am incredibly positive I've got to be honest I do I do always try and look for the positive in in every situation and you know as, as I was listening to the intro you know I did chuckle I did look like a small bear out on playground <laughs> duty the other day you know I think that I mean our, our profession is a difficult one it really is a difficult one and you've always got to look for the good. You've always got to look for the positive. And in, certainly in the 15 years that I've been at East Burgle, you know, every member of staff that I've come across has been here and has been in the profession because they've wanted to be. And so th there's always a positivity in that. You know, you, you might be sitting down with somebody after they've had a particularly bad day or they've had a particularly difficult class or perhaps they're getting to grips with a new exam syllabus and it's it's adding pressure on them but but in there there is always the positivity there is always something in there that you can dig out there is always that that willingness to do well and to do well by the students so so yeah I think I would agree with that I am a resolutely positive person probably to the point of annoyance I reckon <laughs> if I'm honest well, this colleague sounds sounds pretty keen on it. So um, <laughs> there's another point I think is really interesting in, in that quote as well, and it's that it's the last part um, where your colleague said um, that you're a role model for outstanding teaching at Eastburg High School. It's one of those classic challenges, isn't it? That as you as you move up the system, as you move into the higher echelons of management and leadership, that that one's teaching can suffer. It seems that might not be the case with you. How, how do you manage that? I think it, it, it has been a big leap and of course you, you have the issue in our profession in the, the higher up you go, the less time you tend to spend in the classroom teaching your own classes because of course you're off doing other things and, and you're off leading things within school or, or within a trust or something. And it, I think, again, it does go back to that element of positivity. You know, I love being in the classroom still and I still get excited by teaching year eight English on a Wednesday afternoon. You know, I, I still want to have fun in the classroom. I still want to make it a positive experience for my students. And oftentimes, particularly when you're in school leadership and perhaps when you're dealing with something particularly heavy or when you're dealing with something that maybe doesn't have an easy solution to it, then going into the classroom becomes that break almost. It becomes the fun thing that you do during the day. And I think I have actually made a conscious decision in whatever role I've undertaken at school to just not lose that and to just not forget that actually that's the good bit, that's the fun bit, that's the bit that, you know, the students are looking forward to. Um, and, and I do... I do kind of think, you know, for some of the students, when they're packing their bag that morning, and, and I say this, and I've, I've said this to the staff, when they're packing their bag that morning and they're looking at their plan and they're looking at their timetables, you know, th that, that one lesson, that one lesson, you know, that one maths lesson with my maths teachers or their history lesson, they'll be looking forward to that all day. 
And I think it's important as a member of staff that, that you go in and you look forward to it too. And you just think, I want to try and give them the best experience that I can. Hmm. Because for some of those kids sitting in that room, you know, that, that will be the highlight of their day. They'll have been waiting all day for that lesson. And, and I think, you know, you've got to try and give it your best. Sound to, you sound someone who, who's capable of, of placing themselves into the mind of being a teenager. How, do you find that difficult to do? I, I think many of us as, as colleagues, uh, as teachers in education, sometimes we, we find the, the memory or the experience of what it was like to be a teenager quite aloof to us as adults. I mean, how, how do you keep in touch with that? I think, um, I mean, if I think back to, to sort of my teenagers, I probably think I wouldn't want to go back and do it again. You know, it, it is that point in your life, isn't it, where you go from being just somebody's son or daughter, somebody's child, to, to actually becoming the adult that you're going to be. You know, that's where you develop your taste in music and your taste in fashion and your taste in your friends and, and you know, your beliefs and, and what you want to do. And I think that's one of the reasons why I, I couldn't be a primary school teacher. I couldn't teach the younger years. I just couldn't do it because I find teenagers so fascinating. I, f- I find it great that, you know, those little year sevens turn up and, and get off the bus and they're all little and fresh faced. And then you see them again in year 11 and you see a glimpse of the adult that they're going to be. And to have had a hand in that, I think is, is a real, a real privilege, to be honest. I think to have had a hand in shaping those individuals is, um, is amazing and, and of course I've, I've got two stepchildren um one of whom is currently in year 13 and one of whom is currently in year 11 um <clears throat> and it's it, it's so odd from the other side mm. it's so odd from the side of a parent as, as as it is from the side of a teacher it is completely different and and yeah you you do see you know you do see sort of what they're going through just becoming adults and you do realize what an incredible impact the adults in their lives have upon teenagers and have upon the people that, that they're going to become. I agree completely. And it's, it's, I think the role of um, what I might loosely call mentorship, not necessarily in a formal structure, but mm. I think men- mentoring is super important. Now, of course, young people have very specific mentors in their life, parents, teachers, coaches, these kind of things. Um, but, me- but mentors can also be, be broader than that. And again, I pick up on the, the term role modeling that your colleague used earlier. I, I, I think it's super important. And, and I, I, I really like what you said a moment ago that, that you encourage colleagues to think about that one lesson in the day that they see that student, that group of students. And I think ultimately what you're encouraging them, them to be there is to, is to take the position of a mentor or a role model or a positive influence or someone that raises the experience of that child on, a, on an individual day. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we have, um, if I think we have a uh, computing teacher um, working for City Spurgle and she, she is fantastic and she is completely, and no disrespect to any computing teachers listening to this, but she completely bucks the trend of a computing teacher. You know, uh, she's alternative, you know, just in her look, she looks a bit gothy. She's a huge champion of women in STEM and women in engineering. And, and it is that, that idea of the mentor you know, and we've been contacted by um, girls who have gone on to do engineering at university who, who have contacted us and said, you know, the reason we are there is because of this teacher is because we had this awoken in us when we were at school. And I mean, we, we are we are a relatively small rural school. 
you know, we're, we're in a wonderful part of the country, but we are a little bit disconnected. You know, we're not, we're not in a, a big town. We're not in a big city. And to give students opportunities like that, just through role models and, and just through who they're seeing in the classroom, I think is just so, so valuable. Yeah, that's right. I, I actually remember meeting that colleague and I, I, I'll be careful how I choose my words here. I, <laughs> I, I, I was kind of surprised at what she taught, if that makes sense. Not not in a negative way, but it's like when, when it, that person is not the archetypal teacher of computing. And I, I know exactly what you're, what you're referring to. Um, I have a question for you. There's lots of features of your leadership that, that I noticed in, in just the few hours I spent with you. Um, but one of them that I picked up on was that when you addressed your teaching faculty at school, everyone listened. And I know it sounds base, but every single one of them listened. How have you achieved that level of communication with your with your teams? <laughs> oh, were they listening or did they give the impression? They, were listening? <laughs> uh, they, they, they did appear. I, I, th- I think you might be being hard on yourself. I think it's fair to say that they had a lot of respect for you. I think it was, it was pretty evident and um, it came across in when you spoke, people paid attention. Hmm. Well, that's, I mean, that, that, that is awesome to hear. And, um, and you know, my, <laughs> my last comment was tongue in cheek because <laughs> I, I am, I am hugely lucky in that the, the group of staff that we have here are, are phenomenal. And I know that's a big word, but you know, I don't, I don't use it lightly. They are phenomenal. And I think actually that's one of the reasons why I've spent my whole career in the same school because, you know, our, our staff do just go the extra mile and our staff are incredibly open. Mm. They're really open to having professional discussions. You know, I did, when you sort of hear from friends and colleagues in other schools as to how CPD is run and to, um, so, you know, how staff react to CPD. And I just think we, we've, we've never had that here. You know, yes, we've tried some things which haven't worked, and so we haven't tried them again. And, you know, yes, we might have had sessions where we thought, oh, that's, you know, probably not quite right for us. But on the whole, as a staff, I think because we are so open and because we've always never been afraid to have professional discussions in front of each other, I think that's what's what's led to it. You know, I think we've created a culture whereby people listen no, no matter who is talking, because they know that it's going to be worth their while they know that you know the the cpd diet that they're getting they know that the professional development that they're getting is going to be quality and you know if it's not quality and if it does fall short they know that they can raise it and they know that we can have a professional discussion about it and we can look at what we're going to do next time so i think i'd say it's that's probably it's probably not unique to me that everybody's listening. I'd love to think so, because that would do my <laughs> ego so much good. Um, but it, it is probably not unique to me. But I think it is unique to my staff. And I think it is one of the fantastic points that we do have about our staff. Does that professional um, conversation and that openness, does, does that also extend into the classroom itself? It, is East Burkholt a place where people are very comfortable wandering in and out of one another's lessons, where lesson observation is, is felt to be a general, I'm sure there's exceptions, but generally felt to be a, a positive experience? Yeah, yeah, we're getting there. I mean, we, um, we got rid of lesson grading. Um, I think probably we were one of the first schools in the county, actually, to, to get rid of lesson grading and to make it much more about a dialogue to do with teaching and learning rather than, you know, somebody 
parachuting into the back of your lesson and then you know giving you a snapshot based upon that hour um and one of the things that that one of my colleagues actually led was we wrote our lesson observation forms and we wrote our performance management forms together as a staff so you know that that wasn't from the top down it wasn't a kind of right this is what you're doing it was a kind of right okay so what do we need to do what do we need to be looking for and and so one of my colleagues one of the other assistant head teachers made sure that people had a voice in that process that you know as i said it wasn't just somebody parachuting in at the back and turning up twice a year and then making a judgment upon your teaching because we recognized that you know that that wasn't valid yeah that's really interesting and it it leads me on to another question really i mean you're you're talking about uh i guess buy-in there you're talking about uh uh, colleagues having a voice in things i wanted to ask you as an assistant head teacher i'm sure you're developing many um whole school projects and protocols so how do you see the process of getting that buy-in on learning and teaching developments and advancements in the school with with your teaching staff? I think it's, it's got to be clear to people as to how what you're doing is is going to improve their lives to be honest it's got you know I I remember going on a course when I think I've been teaching about two or three years and I was in that sort of post NQT phase where you're just permanently tired the whole time because you know it's, it's the, the profession and you're teaching loads hit you like a train and I remember getting this you know this rare day out and going on a course and it was great and I remember sitting there thinking just just give me the magic wand that I can take back to school that's going to make things better you know that's going to make things better for my students sitting in front of me that's going to make things better for my workload um you know, that's just going to make it better. And I, I still remember sitting in that room surrounded by teachers thinking, just just give me something to take back, something that I can hold on to, something that's going to improve things. And I think that's, that's where you get the buy-in because I've never forgotten that feeling. And whenever you're doing anything in relation to professional development, I think you've got to consider the, po- the people sitting in front of you. And you've got to consider like, what, what am I giving them or what can we do as a staff together that's going to improve things for the students and that's going to improve things. And, you know, to, to quote Mary Myatt, who, who is one of my heroes, you know, she said, you know, if, if it's not going to affect student outcomes, what's the point in doing it? Because you could be at the pub. Yeah. And, and, you know, and she's right. You know, if, if, if what you're doing is not going to make improvements in, in your student outcomes or your student well-being or your staff outcomes and well-being, and again, you know, what, what's the, the point in doing it? That's, that's not giving anybody the magic wand. If it's, if it's not going to drive improvements, then, you know, I'd, I'd rather be in the pub. It, it's music to my ears. It, it really reminds me of a conversation I had with both uh, David Weston and Bridget Clay, both of whom uh, co-authored Unleashing Great Teaching. And the way they summarised this point was that high-quality CPD ultimately has a central intent, which is impact at what they called the outer edge. And they, they literally define the outer edge. I, I don't want to misquote them because I don't have the book in front of me, but it's almost a physical space. It, it's, the, it's almost the, the place at which the protocol, the policy, the training, the CPD literally contacts the student almost always in the classroom. Yeah. And they, that's how they defined it. And I think that's really interesting. And I think you also summarise it. If, you, if we were to look at it from the negative, I think many of us have also sat in CPD experiences which haven't achieved what you just described and it's probably one of the more frustrating experiences of being a teacher 
Mm-hmm. No, I'd, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. When, when I took over um, CPD at East Burgle, one of the first things that I did, it, it was on the, the first PD day that, that I'd had responsibility for, was I did a session called 30 Strategies in 30 Minutes. Wow. And the planet, I'd gone around the school and I'd taken photographs. I'd snuck, sort of snuck into people's classrooms when they weren't there. And I'd taken photographs of things that, that they were using teaching resources that they were using or, or things that they had on display in their classrooms that were really making an impact. Mm-hmm. And before I did that, I'd, I'd spoken to students about, you know, okay, when you, when you go into French, you know, what, what in there is working? Oh, so our miss uses this display and we do this and we do that and stuff. And it was a really quick fire session mm-hmm. of, okay, so here's 30 things that you could take back to your classroom tomorrow that we know to be effective. And I'd interspersed our strategies with, um, you know, kind of sort of things that, that perhaps people might not have sort of accessed since the training year or something or sort of, you know, high stakes quizzes and things like that. And, and the reason for doing it was, was twofold. Firstly, because 30 minutes, everyone's got 30 minutes. You know, there's nothing worse. And, and I think you were alluding to it as well. You know, there's nothing worse than sitting in a CPD session that's gone for three hours and you think I've got one thing out of this, mm. you know, that's, that's three hours of, of, of my life that I'm never going to get back. And, you know, I mean, time, time is our most precious resource as teachers. And so, you know, the reason for doing it was, okay, 30 minutes, here we go. Here's 30 strategies. And just seeing as I was going through this session, people seeing their own work and thinking, Oh gosh, you know, that's got a bit of recognition that's working you know I mean I remember putting up some posters from our head of drama and she'd banned certain words in drama you know so you couldn't say in feedback you couldn't say that performance was good that word was banned you know instead could you say you know um that performance had real pathos could you say that performance you know and and to just show people the kind of things that actually we were already doing in-house that that was the impact that I wanted when I took over CPD I wanted people to know what we were already doing that was incredible. And I also wanted them to know, I wanted to make a point that I'm not going to waste your time. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. And you can, you can imagine the sensation, the feeling someone would have when they saw their own project or their own display or their own resource or their own worksheet, whatever it happened to be up on that screen. I, I would imagine that would have given people real satisfaction. Mm-hmm. I think it did. I think it did. And I think it, it you know, it, it had the impact that I wanted. I think it, it just brought home to people that, that CPD isn't going to be something that's done to you. Mm. You know, it's something that you have a hand in. It's something, and, and going back actually to what you said about the staff and being very open in their discussion, I, th- I think that's where it comes out of it as well. You know, I, we do try and make sure that, that CPD isn't just something that you go to and you're passive and you sit there and then you go home and think, or I'm an hour late home tonight because of that, you know, we, we, we actually want it to be something that people are interacting in and taking part in as well. And, and, you, and of course, that even included in this, in, in the example you gave, it even included the students who were, who were themselves, the, the, the individuals and the groups who were providing you with the feedback of what works in French, what works in history and so on and so on. So that buy-in was actually uh, layered be, beyond teachers actually having an input. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, students will tell you straight, won't they? They, they will tell you, you know, they, they are your best critics because, you know, they're the ones that sort of get to the end of the lesson and, and look at you and go, oh, it didn't work today, miss. You know, <laughs> and you just yeah. think, yeah, no, it didn't. What are we going to do next time? So, yeah, they, they've absolutely got to have some buy into it as well. 
If there was a, a, a colleague listening, Cheryl, and, and th they are actively or they are considering transition to, let, let's say, a, a, a post which is equivalent to yours, assistant head teacher, perhaps in teaching and learning, perhaps moving to SLT in, in another, a slightly different discipline. Um, having worked with mentors yourself, and I know you value mentoring quite highly, um, if you've got to offer advice to a colleague considering that move, let's say from head of department or head of faculty to senior leadership, what advice would you give on that transition? I think I'd say, I'd say if you can, then do the MPQSL um, or an equivalent or an equivalent senior leadership course to, to get you prepared. And, and my reason for that would be that there are so many aspects of school leadership that you don't know about and you can't prepare yourself for. And doing something like the MPQSL or, or a senior leadership course will just make sure that, that by the time you go for that interview, you're, you've got a broad range. You, you've got a broad range of skills and you're kind of ready. I mean, don't get me wrong, nothing could have prepared me for senior leadership. Nothing at all. But that really helped. Having done the MPQSL really helped. And I mean, an example would be I'm, I'm, I'm an English teacher. I'm not overly mathematically minded. Um, but of course, in senior leadership, you, you need to look at data. You need to be able to analyse whole school data. You know, you, you need to be able to understand that and pull out from it information and know where your priorities are. If I hadn't done some training before that point, I, I wouldn't have been able to, to even get through the interview, if I'm honest, because, you know, one of the tasks was, was a data task. And, and you do just need to almost, if you like, just go back to school. You do just need to be taught some aspects of, of senior leadership before you get there. And, and of course, I say that as, as somebody who's been in this school her whole career, mm. you know, and, and I still found it an incredible jump. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. I, I, I really pick up on that point. Some things you just need to be taught even at that level. That's a really <coughs> fascinating thing. And obviously the answer to that for you was the, uh, was the MPQSL. Mm. I think that's interesting. I wonder what gaps each of us, obviously they'll be different for different individuals. I wonder what gaps each of us would ultimately take into that role without an experience like that, which could potentially seriously hamper our performance in that really through no fault of our own. It would be effectively a, a gap in knowledge or experience or understanding or awareness that just needed some instruction. Yeah, absolutely. You've, you've, you've got to be open to instruction and you, you know, you've, you've got to park your ego because mm. there will be some things that you'll come across and you'll think, I, I need some, yeah, I can't do this on my own. I can't do this on my own. And I mean, I'm hugely lucky in the, the senior leadership team that I work with at East Burgholt. You know, I mean, some of them have, have known me from a girl, you know, because they've known me for 15 years. Um, but we are a wonderfully supportive team of each other. And, you know, you, there is no room for ego in senior leadership because there will be times when you have to go to somebody and sit in front of them and say, I've got this issue and... I don't know how to do it. Can you help me, please? And those those are the situations where, where you learn the most. I'd also like to ask you about um, your views on women in leadership. I, I know it's something you, you feel strongly about also. What, what do you see and what do you hope for with regard to uh, women in, leadership, in educational leadership? Well, you know, I, um, I'm currently undergoing some um, training with the uh, Mid-Suffolk teaching school alliance which is purely for women in leadership in suffolk 
Um, and I was lucky enough to meet Vivian Porritt, who was one of the co-founders of, of Women Ed. And I, I mean, my eyes were just open. I, I really, really wish that Women Ed existed when I first started teaching. Um, or I don't think Twitter existed when I first started teaching, to be honest. Um, but it is an incredible organisation. And, you know, it, it was really eye-opening listening to Vivian Porritt and listening to her leadership story. And I mean, one of the things, you know, out as a profession, teaching is is female heavy i think it's something like 75 percent of the teaching workforce is female mm-hmm. but 35 percent of secondary head teachers are female and 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 you know it, it's just so interesting thinking about well where does that come from why is that the case you know is it because women are having time out to have children is it because women maybe perhaps look at a job spec and think perhaps I can't do that. Whereas a man might look at it and think, oh yeah, I can give that a go. I mean, it, you know, it, it was interesting how at, at the start when we first started talking and, you know, I'd listened to the intro and you talked about the quote from one of my colleagues and I, you know, I just felt uncomfortable. And I think that's actually more of a female trait than a male trait. Mm. I think as women, we're, we're actually, we're not very good at taking praise and we're not very good about thinking about what we're good at and I do wonder if that is a barrier to women in leadership yeah that's that's really interesting I, you you've brought me to I, I can't talk about this colleague she's um she works with us producing history content and she's absolutely I, I can't express how magnificent she is at her job <laughs> so quite often I'm kind of gushing in my praise and just I just need to look I I can't hold this back I need to say how good that is and when when we first started receiving her resources, she, she really struggled to accept that someone was saying that about her. And you really bring that to my mind. Now, I, I don't know whether that has to do with um, the, the cultural concept of womanhood or it's, you know, or it's a bio, I, I, I'm not qualified to say, but it's interesting that you recognise that. There was, um, I'm trying to think where it was, there, were, there was a study recently was there, that said something like uh, a man will read a job description and if he thinks he can do 75% of it, will go for it. Mm. Whereas a woman tends to read it and think, oh, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that, rather than focusing on, on the bits that, that she can do. Mm. And, and I, I do completely, I do completely understand that. And I think some of it as well is it also comes in in the language of, yeah. of school leadership. I mean, one of the anecdotes that Vivian Porritt shared was uh, an advertisement for a head teacher for a school. It, it said something like, must have a sporting ethos and gravitas. And, and, and I, I see that I do see that as very male. Mm. I've got to be honest, if I'm reading an advert that says, you know, do you want to come and work for us? Do you have a sporting ethos and gravitas? I probably think, I don't think that is me. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? And I, I was going to specifically ask you about the wording of things like job specs or adverts. It, mm. it, it, of course, there are going to be many exceptions to this. And I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure someone would listen to what I'm about to say here and think, well, you know, I am that robust kind of physical <laughs> competitive type. But... There, I think that there is a there is a leaning, isn't there? There is a tendency for men to gravitate towards sort of masculine pursuits, sort of more physical things, more competitive, slightly more aggressive. And there's a tendency for women, generally, I, I guess, to 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 do so less. So therefore, if our wording of important documents like job specs and uh, adverts do 
do mill around the kind of yeah like the the physical the robust the competitive mm. even the aggressive sometimes that that may have that impact yeah definitely definitely I don't, I, how do we change that i mean is that just awareness I, th I think it's a long slow process changing it isn't it and i think that some of it is actually is coming out of women ed in that you know some of it is is actually us as female teachers re-educating ourselves and thinking well you, do you know what just because i'm a female teacher doesn't mean that i'm the nurturing type doesn't mean that i'm you know that that i'm a quieter teacher perhaps than one of my male counterparts i, th I think it's about us i mean don't get me wrong we need to know what our strengths are and, and we need to know what we're good at. But at the same time, I think, I think it is about actually questioning these things when we see them and saying, you know, well, hang on a minute. Is that language a little bit exclusive? You know, do, do, do we need to look at that advert that we're putting out and, and perhaps think about the, the person that we want and how this is going to be read by somebody else? I think it's about putting us on the other side. Certainly if, if you're a school and you're putting an advert out, you've got to have a look at it as if you were applying for it uh, rather than just you know the person who's there writing it and think actually is this actually attracting the people that we want it's, I, I literally just looked this up as you were talking because um, you reminded me of an article I read about six months ago I um, as, a, as a male I guess I, I, quite, I quite enjoy a bit of football one of the things I read was uh, the FC Barcelona the, the football club um, they have banned in their uh, in all of their rhetoric, in their coaching, they have banned the following words. They have banned the words attack, defend, destroy, win at all costs, aggression, enemy, humiliate, selfishness, improve. Uh, and they've replaced them um, with possession phase, recovering the ball, create, enjoy, learn, compete, assertiveness, opponent, outperform, empathy, optimize. And th they, they talk of it as re removing the language of war from their sporting paradigm and there, there are similarities i think yes yeah, see that see that's so interesting that's so interesting and i th i mean i think we're lucky in that we i mean we have an, an outstanding head of pe here and you know just sort of using the, the football as an example you know our girls football team is just as successful as our boys football team mm. and you know there, there's never been kind of any difference i don't think as to you know how those teams are coached and also very importantly the the profile that those teams get in school you know there there is no difference whatsoever to the fuss we make of our girls when they win the county cup mm. as there is to the fuss we make of our boys mm. and and i think that is you know that is down to the leadership of that department and that is down to making sure that sport is sport is sport and and you bring to the game whatever you bring to the game regardless of anything else that's really interesting. Now, Cheryl, another thing of note about you is your tie with the local community. I, I think I'm right in saying that you believe in an association between the school and out-of-school projects. Could you give us some examples of that? Yeah, we've, um, we recently, uh, we, we are, as I said, we're, we're a very rural school and um, we are in a beautiful part of the country. We're in Constable Country and we're close to Flatford Mill and, you know, it's absolutely stunning here. Uh, but the vast majority of our students are bussed in from the surrounding villages. Um, we do get some coming from the towns from Colchester and Ipswich. Um, but we're, you know, we're a very lovely, sedate, 
lovely little place and, and most of our students are, are, are village kids and um, we were contacted a couple of years ago by one of our uh, villages, Capel St Mary, wanted to build a war memorial. The, the village had never had a war memorial and a group of local residents had got together and, and thought that this would be a great project and, and did we want to get involved. And it, it was hugely important to our students and their families, you know, this, this thing that was, that was going on in Capel. And it just absolutely took off. It just absolutely exploded. Um, you know, we ended up, we held an art exhibition here. We were inviting local residents in and they came and spoke to our history classes. Um, some of our students were ended up being interviewed by the BBC for their involvement in it. And it all came from the students. And it all came from the students because they knew these people that were running it. You know, they were their friends and their colleagues and their neighbours. And, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was, you know, such and such as granddad was on this committee and let's do this and let's get involved. And I think one of the things that, that struck me when I first moved here, because, you know, it was that sort of village culture, because I didn't have that where, where I grew up. And, you know, it did make me realise that unless you nurture that, unless you keep those links with the community, unless you actually invite, you know, such and such as granddad in, who turns out to have been a history professor and actually, you know, get his, his input on things and, and access his knowledge, then your, your school just exists in isolation. And I think for rural schools, it's hugely, hugely important that you, you do have those links with the people that, that you're surrounded with, not just because it, it gives your students fantastic opportunities, you know, which it did, but, you know, just because it, it, it means that you are still then all connected because in a town school, I think you get that already. I think you've, you've got everything on your doorstep, but here it, it is slightly different. And it, it was actually, it was wonderful to, the War Memorial had its sort of dedication ceremony this year because they wanted to do it on the last year of the centenary. And it was wonderful to be there in the village on that Sunday and just see so many staff and so many students and who had just come out because that had been something that we'd all done together. Hmm. And it's, I think, I really do think that you have to nurture your community links, particularly if your school is, is that little bit out of the way. You, you absolutely have to do it because, you know, otherwise you, you do just lose touch with so many rewarding things and rewarding people that could otherwise be part of your school community. And it's really interesting because, of course, you, you're someone who has, if I can paraphrase that, you, you have kind of that localised view and the importance of locality and community. But I think it's fair to say you're, you also greatly value travel and international outlook for students. What, why is that so important? Um, I, think it, it, I think it's twofold, really. I think when I was growing up, um, we, you know, we didn't travel much. And it, it just kind of, you know, it, it wasn't something that, that I grew up with as, as being norm. Um, and when I met my husband, my husband's German. And, um, you know, so then suddenly, you know, going home means getting on a plane rather than, you know, getting in the car. And, and suddenly I think, you know, as, as I, once I started teaching and, and once I met my husband and settled down with my husband, your outlook just becomes widened that much. 
and we are lucky here in that we we offer students a lot of residential trips abroad and I, I did my first residential abroad we, we take a trip to the world war one battlefields of um, northern france and belgium and i was a, i was a very young teacher when i did that um and it really did change my outlook i came back from that trip and i just thought this is incredible every student needs to experience this you know every student just you know needs to be in a country where perhaps english isn't the first language just to experience what it's like and just to experience a, a different culture mm. um and and i just became quite um enthusiastic about it and and quite sort of zealous about it and i just thought you know get as many children as possible you know i wanted to to grow up having these experiences that's really fascinating because what what I, what I like about that as well, and I, obviously I, I don't want to say anything negative about your childhood because I, I firstly I have no idea, but it's 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 it sounds like there were certain limitations there, you know, practical limitations in terms of things like travel and holidays and what have you, and you've clearly recognised the value of those things and want to implement or at least give opportunity of those exact experiences to, to young people today which i really applaud you for are you concerned with the brexit thing in that context or is that something you're just waiting to see play out or do you think it will have an impact um yeah i mean i i am concerned um i am concerned at the possible impact that it could have um and certainly for you know sort of people in in my personal position you know i'm, I'm yeah. married to an eu migrant i'm yes. married to somebody who will need to apply for settled status and that whatever the outcome is is disconcerting and it's you know it's it's uncomfortable and it's it's not a position that we've ever been in before um i think in terms of sort of students and, and the students that that i teach I'm, I'm very lucky in that um my sort of previous head teacher who's still working in the trust but isn't head teacher at the moment one of the first things he said was we are not going to change things you know we're still going to take these trips um you know we're we're still going to do this i mean as, as it happens my husband is actually taking uh from his school he's taking a group of students to europe on a trip on brexit weekend wow. so uh, I'm, I'm i'm crossing my fingers i'm crossing my fingers for that one i really am yeah it's it's a, I, I really recognize what you're saying on the personal level as well i, I as you know my my partner is Catalan, Spanish, uh, both of my children, one of whom you met when we had to bring her to the school that day. Um, they're both Spanish passport holders. And as things stand, stand right now, the three other members of my family have to apply to stay in the UK. Now, I assume that application will be a formality, but I think the word you used is idea is disconcerting. Um, I'd, I'd like to just, if I may, just ask you about home life a little bit as well. So um, your husband is an award-winning German philosophy teacher. And currently, I, I don't know exactly how it works. Would, would you describe him? Uh, is he a house husband? Did, <laughs> did you, I think the term you used was uh, you described him as your first lady. How, how does that he work? <laughs> Do you know, he'd love to be a house husband. He'd absolutely <laughs> love that. Sadly, we're not in that position yet. Um, no, it, we, we made a conscious decision when, when I took the assistant head teacher post. Um, we realised that, you know, bringing up children, certainly bringing up teenagers and wanting to give them the time and support and attention that they deserved, we, we realised that things would have to change slightly at home because, you know, you can't have it that both of you are 
getting home at eight, nine o'clock in the evening. You know, it's not fair on them. Um, and so, yeah, he, uh, when I became assistant head teacher, he brought me a wonderful notepad with the words Madam President on the front for, for me to take to, to all my meetings. And, and we decided, um, I mean, he, he was ahead of year um, at his school and he had responsibility for PSHE and, and a couple of other things. And we decided that he was going to take a step back so that you know there there would be you know somebody home not long after the kids and and so that you know there would be somebody there who could take care of of the day-to-day -day things and and i adore him for that i adore him for that and and you know get going back actually to what we were talking about about gender and things like that you know he he is wonderfully comfortable with that as far as he's concerned you know we're both working we're bringing up our families but but no, it, it, it honestly, it, it makes me love him more every day mm. that he's willing to, to do that for our family. That's great. And, and how's your German, Cheryl? Is it, you speak of it? <laughs> oh, it's rusty. It's rusty. Yeah. It's not as good as it should be. It's really not as good as it should be. I, I, I know enough when we, when we go over, I know enough to be able to survive. And my husband will probably argue that I know enough to be able to go shopping successfully. <laughs> um, but no, it's not as good as it should be. I'm actually, and I, I tell the students this because I use Duolingo. Do you know that? Uh, app? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so I, I use Duolingo and I'm trying to improve it a lot at the moment. And I, th I think the kids think that, that that's quite sweet that, oh, Miss is learning stuff as well. You know, it doesn't, doesn't just stop when you, when you finish your GCSEs. But uh, yeah, so I'm trying to improve. That's great. I, I lived in Germany for six months um, in my 20s and uh, learned, learned a little bit of German. Where, whereabouts is your husband from, by the way? He's from Hanover. Hanover. From Hanover yeah. where, they, where they speak perfect German. Yes, it's it the, is. It's the equivalent of BBC English in Hanover. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Um, Cheryl, in the next five years, what are you determined that you will continue to do exactly as you do it now? And what are you determined to change? Gosh, what would I continue to do exactly as I'm doing now? I'd continue to feel positive every time I walk through my classroom door, I think. I'd continue to go into lessons thinking, this is where I want to be and this is what I want to be doing. And I think I'd continue to give my students the absolute very best educational diet that I could. And what would I change? I think I've developed, um, going into senior leadership, you do develop a bit of a thicker skin um, because you have to, because you're, you're dealing with lots of different things from lots of different areas and, and you do have to be a bit more resilient. But I think as a woman and as somebody who tends to be a bit of a people pleaser, I'd continue to work on that. I'd continue, I think, to work on my resilience and and developing that little bit of armour sometimes, perhaps. Very interesting. Now, I feel a little bit bad because we haven't spoken about your Shanghai trip. If, if <laughs> you have a moment, and feel free if, if, time, if time's tight for you, but if, if you had a moment to tell us about it, it would be really fascinating. If not, perhaps we'd pick it up in, a, in a episode two. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, um, it, it goes back really to sort of the, the sort of internationalist outlook and, and wanting to give students opportunities. We're, um, we're hosting in school, we're hosting a group of Chinese students who are coming over in July to give them a, a cultural experience of what a UK school is like, um, with the view to then setting that up in that our students could then return at a later date to, 
to experience Shanghai education. And I'm hugely, hugely excited by that. So it's effectively, it's a potential exchange then. I mean, that, that could be deeply revealing for young people, I think, to experience that. Mm, mm, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, we, we don't have much ethnic diversity amongst our student body or, or indeed amongst our staff body as well. And, yeah, just, just the eye-opening opportunities that, that that can give our students and staff. You know, I, I can't wait. I can't wait. And, and I, again, I just pick up on something you said before. You, you, you made reference to the fact that I think I think as British people, we're quite we're quite accustomed to travelling and visiting. We're not particularly accustomed to being the foreigner. Now, obviously, you and I—I've I, spent thousands and thousands of hours as the foreigner uh, in, from from uh, in northern Spain and Catalonia, where my partner's from. Um, and obviously, that's something you're you're accustomed to as well. And I, I agree with you. I think the the potential impact of that experience, controlled, of course, is really positive for young people. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it and, and you'll, you'll probably know this yourself, but it, it, when you are in that situation and when everybody else around you is fluent and when, you know, even things like shop signs are unfamiliar and the culture is unfamiliar, that's, you know, that's a real learning experience, isn't it? You, you, you find out who you are as a person in experiences like that when, when you're out of your comfort zone, when you're not comfortable. I agree. Well, Cheryl, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm so glad we, that we invited I'm so glad that you said yes. Um, I, I believe what you've spoken about today is deeply rich for a great, great number of people. And I'm sure it will be well listened to and well respected because I think some of the messages that you've, you've shared and the experiences that you've had uh, just cover so many facets of what each of us experiences on, on, a, on a daily basis. I also want to uh, say thanks to you uh, on the professional side as well, because um, from our side, for us as a business, we're you know we're we're not the big publishing company. We're not the big uh, inset company with the brochures that they send round to you fifty times a year and and what have you. We're, we're, we're that kind of small startup, and people such as yourself who are early adopters are very very valuable to us. So I, I really thank you for that as well publicly because I, you know we really value people who have that early adoption um, mindset so, so thank you for that and we'll be we'll be sharing this with the community and i'm sure there'll be some great feedback that's wonderful thank you so so much for inviting me because it has been brilliant to just talk about things for for 45 minutes and absolutely right you, you switch switch the phone off you actually chat about stuff properly without interrupting it's great it's, it's wonderfully valuable. It's wonderfully valuable. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks, James.